You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Michelle, I'm here with Professor Chaim Seyman, who I've come to appreciate as a person who can give a perspective on things in a clear and balanced fashion. We're talking here about something which is quite emotional, something that really bonds Chaim and myself, and that is that we were both Talmidim by uh, Kalman Weinrib, who was Nifter last week. We're speaking here just the day after the Shiva is over. And I reached out to Chaim when I wanted to put together a hesped of Talmidim. Time didn't really work out for him. And he said, hey, why don't we speak afterwards? So I became aware just a couple of minutes ago of the beautiful uh, hesped and appreciation that uh, you wrote, Chaim. And why don't we just start with that? Why don't you, uh, you know, give, give voice to these uh, these wonderful words that you've penned here? Sure, thank you. My journey to Neri Yisrael was never going to be typical. Most kids came from either yeshivish homes or those leaning into the rightward shift, then taking hold in orthodoxy. My parents, Israeli-born Datitzionim, had no such interests. But as I had exhausted the Torah learning opportunities available in Atlanta at the time, they sent me to Neri Yisrael, despite, not because of its ashkafa. Probably for this reason, they can never bring themselves to buy me a black hat, even though it was clear when it was required. Two days before I left, my mother took me to a mall in Atlanta and begrudgingly bought me a hat from, not a from hat store, but the hat rack at the department store. Now, whether you're in West Valley High or Mechinas Neri Yisrael, the right attire is central to success in high school. I arrived in there in 1991 with a cheap black bowler and a suitcase full of polyester-colored shirts. The results surprised no one. I had one thing going for me, however. Hashem had the foresight to put me in a common Weiner Bashir, the Mechina's legendary Rebbe, who passed away last week following 50 years of teaching 10th grade. I'm hardly his Talmud Muvak, but Rav Kalman was the first person I called Rebbe. He was a master Mechanech, a wise and sensitive Baal Musser, who guided me as I came of age and into religious consciousness. There are many teachers that I'm ideologically closer to and more methodologically influenced by, but no one else will ever be that first Rebbe who provided my foundation, Beishit Mikurim. Foundations tend to sink over time. They're overwhelmed by the larger buildings atop and are barely noticed. Yet, they support the entire structure. And for that, I owe of Kalman Hakar Satov. As a teenager, I craved his attention, often feeling that in the building of more than 200 boys, he was one of the few who understood me. He validated and helped me articulate my questions on Yahadis, on yeshiva life and its ideals. He was able to reframe the oftentimes cold harshness of the yeshiva experience with warmth and embrace. On occasion, he'd invite me to his basement study after night seder, access through the back of the house so as not to disturb anyone. Sitting in that chair late at night, this nebi out-of-towner felt like the most important person in the yeshiva. My feet barely touched the ground as I walked back to the dorm. Rebbe had invited me to talk over issues of Ashkapa and Machshava. I recall the topics of some of our conversations. 
Why is based in punishment so limited? I asked. Because Hashem will punish those he needs to, answered her common. Then why do we need based in at all? I countered. And on it went from there. If the Gemara and Rishonim knew all the Achronim Svaris, why didn't they just say them, I'd ask? Or another time, after learning the Gemara, which debated different versions of what Rav held, I asked, if Rav's own Talmidim were so unsure of what he said, what does that say about us? I'm nothing if not consistent. Though Rav Kalman took an obvious interest in me, he also wisely instilled a sense of distance forcing me to seek answers and connections elsewhere. This was not only to model proper Rebbe Talmud relationship, but because he knew that this out-of-towner would never make it if targeted as the Rebbe's pet. Years later, I marvel how perfectly he calibrated letting me fend for myself while always watching and ready to throw the safety net when, but only when, I really need it. I felt very seen when this scene emerged in the fifth installment of Harry Potter between Harry and Dumbledore. And then, of course, Maseches Brachas. In addition to the Maseches, the rest of the yeshiva learned, it was Kedushin that year, 10th grade always studied and completed Brachas. After so many years teaching it, Rav Kalman was Brachas. I can still hear his sing-song voice whenever I learn the sugya there. As I cracked open my Gemara from 10th grade this morning, I found a note in my 15-year-old handwriting, stating with pride the date in which I made my first siyam on any Masechet, of course, Masechus Brachas. At the end of the year, the Talmudim would take the famed Masechet Bechina, a 100-question final exam on the entire Masechus. No other class had anything close to the lore surrounding with Common's Brachas final. The same exam was given every year, and there was even a Masechet as to which question was the hardest, number 61, if I remember which in the annals of Mechina history had notoriously tripped up several otherwise perfect scores. Getting above a 90 was like being named starter on the basketball team. And above a 95, all-star territory. Above a 97, you're a Hall of Famer. This is as close to organized sports we got it in there. As the year drew to a close, Rav Kalman would urge us to chazer, 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 until we were Kona the Masechta. He would cite the Gemara's statement, that you can't compare someone who reviewed their learning 101 times to someone who only reviewed it 100 times. That's in Chagiga. I recall routinely staying up till 1, 2 in the morning reviewing brachas. When grades came out, he put his hand on my shoulder and warmly said, you are matzliach. After a rough year on the sidelines, he coached me into a starter. I didn't keep up with Rav Kalman over the years, but in 2019, right before COVID, I went to visit him in what would be his last year of teaching. I'd sent him a copy of my book, Halacha. He's thanked in the acknowledgments, and he's referenced in the preface. I didn't want to put him on the spot to ask if he read it, or what he thought of an academic book that certainly stretched beyond the yeshiva's orbit. I did walk him through my reading of the opening sugi and brachas, which is one of the chapters in the book, and concluded, Talmidecha anu umeimecha anu shotim. We are your students, and we're nurtured from your waters. From Chagiga. He smiled and said, thank you for coming and telling me that. Now, there's a universal message that almost anyone can learn from Rav Kalman. He spent 50 years in the same job, teaching the same grade, the same sachas, giving many of the same musr shmuzes over and over. He was a consummate sameach v'chalko. Though he excelled at what he did, he never moved up to a more advanced year or to administration. 
By the time I was in Israel, he had already been teaching for more than 20 years. And in conversations I've had with students he's had more recently, it's clear his success as an educator did not wane. It would have been easy, expected even, for Kalman to go on autopilot. Yet he was energized, not because the material was new to him, but because it was new to his students. Each Talmud deserved the wonder and excitement of discovering the Gemara or hearing the pre-Rosh Hashanah shmuz for the first time. Rav Kamler offered it with authentic enthusiasm that can't be faked. As I have now myself been teaching for more than a decade and a half, I've come to appreciate just how hard that is. I stand in awe of his love of his Talmudim and his Messiris and dedication. Nizdamein Rabbi Kalman l'metivta didrakia, patach v'darash, me'emasai, koverin shma v'arvis. Very moving and personable and once again reflective of a, of a style that, that you developed. I have to tell you that Rukhaman himself was a, a big fan of good, well-structured prose. He, I don't know if you remember in the shir, unlike some of the other shirim that were sort of in yeshivish uh, sprach, Rukhaman did enjoy uh, inserting I, what I thought was important sort of words that a 10th grader should add to his lexicon. You know, he melded it interestingly with, you know, with the yeshiva shesprach, but I think it was the type of things that was reflective of a, of a childhood that he had, which, although when we saw him, he seemed to be the perfect package of the Ben Thera, you know, he was an American boy. And I think he, he, you know, he sometimes had to hold that in. Did you, did you ever get that sense from him? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree that of the Mechina Rebbe's, uh, he stands out of my mind as one whose vocabulary was, not, I don't know if largest, but sort of most important to the way he communicated with Talmidim. It, you know, and I say this not in a negative way, like the, the Shir and particularly the Moser Shemuzes were a performance. And and we heard in the Hespedim uh, and whatnot that, that that was not accidental, that he had spent time and, and he understood that the the performance quality is is important beyond the, the mere token. And I think the vocabulary and the verbal dexterity uh, was certainly part of that. But, but, but it wasn't anything that was so challenging that you didn't know where he was going. He, he, he had the sense of leading. He had the sense of, I know where I am and where these students are, just like he understood you. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of rabbeim, professors, teachers, speechifiers, as it used to be said in the old in the old South, who sort of like want to impress you and and uh, flounce you with the beauty of their prose. He actually, I think, wanted to help students give them give them language and give them a way to articulate things that allowed them, I think, to accept it much better, as we know. You know, I think it's also interesting that, you know, in your introduction to your wonderful book, Halacha, you mentioned the, your learning of Masefus Kedushin, which is, of course, what you learned with, with Rakhalman, which is what I did as well in my year. And, you know, you, you talk about it being a very defining moment for certain uh, sugya, which, you know, does, we don't have to go into right now. But uh, can you talk a little bit about, about how you felt Rakhalman, how effective he was in allowing the sugya to live uh, while you were while it was being taught. At the same time, keeping the questions at bay, but zeroing in on the essential dynamic of how 
the Gemara, the Talmud, and Halacha works. So I'll tell you, to be honest, I, as you know, when he heard he 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 was Nifter, I, I was like racking my brain, saying, could I remember a particular shear or a particular vort? I sort of remembered a few phrases from the Musr Shmuzes, and I will say that at the time, and this I remember back in tenth grade, I felt that I, I can't tell what his emphasis was, but I felt that the Bikiyas program in the Mechina, particularly in the earlier part of the Mechina, meaning ninth and 10th, was much more effective than the Iyun part. And this is not about Rub Kalman specifically, but about the whole thing. Because I think that, and, and I think this was his genius, because he did stress Brachas. I mean, ask anyone who went to Nehisrael, you say Rub Kalman, and, and Brachas will be in the next sentence 100% of the time. That that is what kids that age can do. You know, uh, were there shiurim on Mekadosh Bemilva? Yes. Do I vaguely remember these concepts? Yes. I can't tell you uh, what we learned then. And when I learned Kedushin later, uh, not much stuck. But brachos, brachos sticks. I, I know that Masechka. My, my, I guess, I you know, it's, it's funny because with me it's the opposite. I, I sort of appreciated, I, I felt he was more the actor in the Bikiyas part. And the Bikiyas part, that was where there was no interruption. He came in like a, like a, like, you know, like a, like a comet. And, you know, you had to get it done. I think it was, I think the, the amount of the Bikiyas was about 30 minutes or something like that. It was like a 30 minutes. It feels right. Yeah. It was about 30 minutes. And you knew that once he got going, don't get that train stopped. Don't get that train stopped. And of course, there was there was I I don't remember if there was a break in between the Bikiyas, but it was definitely something where he walked in and the train was leaving the station and it was moving at breakneck speed. And you could tell even I was there his third year, nineteen seventy four. He already had figured out where to stop, where to make the point, where to uh, do the, to do the flourish. And you're correct. It's not just the idea of accomplishment of how much you learn during the 30 minutes that allotted, but it was also, as you said, the tests, the beginners, uh, as you pointed out, the, the, the Hasmoda and Hazara that was its byproduct. But I actually felt in, that he allowed me into his laboratory and to show even his struggling with trying to figure out the eon. Of trying to figure out, yeah, Makadish Bemilva, Mikmitin Ore, Dinevikani, you know, and and Sklikwafani, Erisanoisa, the Suanoisa. I'll tell you where what I remember is nuts is the stuff coming out of it. I mean, to me, I had grown up learning with my father some certainly by standards of of where I was coming from, uh, uh learning relatively a lot. But but ideas of you know, the classic Litvish Yeshivas ideas, which I was first introduced to, to through him, of, you know, Torah is not just something you do, you know, on Shabbos for sure, and maybe during the week, but, but it's the framing definition of life. And, and the concept of Bittal Torah, that like, you know, that, that, that every moment not learning is a moment that should be done learning, right? Uh, this, these were foreign concepts to me. And that I remember talking to him a lot about, trying to understand that, what does that mean? How do we then relate to the rest of the world? 
and the rest of the world can just be simply, you know, my friends and parents where I came from, you know, like my very narrow world or the world at large. What does it mean that the world is created for Torah study? And then as I did write in the book, uh, in, in my Halacha book, which is, you know, I you could say I started in Nair Yisrael in the preface because that's where this journey for me started with Reb Kalman. And but I would say not so much the exact content, though there's a story there that anyone's welcome to read that gets to it. But like, why is it that learning Torah and learning, you know, abstract things like Mekadosh Benilveh or, or and all these sort of things, why is that the thing on which the world rests? And that we talked uh, quite a bit about. So I would say things that grew out of the Sugya rather than specific points in the city. I guess that wasn't clear. It's, it was it was that he allowed entrance into the dynamism of the way the thought process was working. And he was able to, through that, to obviate the sense of relevancy because you saw the idea coming to life. And you saw that this was something that our generation needed to figure out as well, using our own lexicon, using our own vocabulary. And I think that, in a way, was, was, was extremely powerful. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, he wasn't known as the greatest Alamdan, but he was definitely the, the master of allowing the Lamdas to percolate and to become part of it. And I think in, in that way, it's almost like, why are you asking me whether this is relevant or not? You know, are, we, we are here in, you've been taken, you've been transported. And I think he was, he was able to do that by his authenticity. He was able to do it also, I think, by his extreme discipline. And, and you mentioned the way he was able to erect a, a sort of a distance. You mentioned, and I think I felt this as well. On one hand, there was a lot of love, but there was a place where, hey, it doesn't go any further. You know, now it's time, as you say, to be independent. I think that is a, is a trick that in college might be easy to master. But I think in high school, many teachers that, that I've observed and I've been worked together with don't always have that balance. And it's incredible how, how innately he sensed that. Remember, when I was his student, he was in his t- mid-twenties and he had that, he had that arois. That, I think that's, that's quite an accomplishment. To... Yeah, you definitely. I mean, you know, I think I, as I remember you know, myself at the time, I would have been in his house every night schmoozing. And he was like very clear of like, you know, when yes, when no. And, uh, you know, and, and that's why I a little bit referenced Harry Potter. I, I think fundamentally boarding schools in intense environments have, have similar sort of narrative lines. But, uh, you know, I didn't understand the time. But, but I remember we talked about this when I was in 12th grade a little bit. And uh, as he saw me become, you know, slowly a little bit more integrated uh, into the yeshiva. So I think this was a, a deliberate choice. And I, and I, looking back, I felt like, you know, he knew exactly when yes and, and when no. And, and, you know, I'll say that what, one of the other things I remember that was very powerful for me was going to his house Friday night, uh, which uh, I don't remember if it was every week or every other week. I'm sure someone will know the answer to that. But Especially for, for an out-of-towner who, who really lived in the dorms and didn't go home, uh, et cetera, you know, the entire week, you basically saw one color palette, which was white and black, 
Uh, and you basically saw boys between, or men, young men, whatever, between the ages of, let's say, 14. And occasionally we'd go with night seder to the yeshiva-based medrash. And, you know, guys there were in their early 20s. And, and that was your world. And then I remember the feeling to walk into a house Friday night and it's just a warm environment. There's a little more, you know, there's some, there's a color palette. You know, you get a sense of family. Like that was to me a very calming time because like I, I didn't realize how much I'd missed that. And then as you walk in the house, you know, it smells like a house. It smells like Shabbos. It looks like Shabbos. There's a family environment, even though, of course, you're there with the, with the Talmudim. Uh, but, you know, little kids running around. That, that was a... I, part of the week that was very, very like important, uh, independent of whatever he said there, whatever mirrors we had and whatnot, because it, it sort of balanced the very like rigidness and and and, and the, the monochrome of sure, the I guess, well, well, to me, uh Nerysdral is the prototypical regimented boarding school. You know, I'm somewhat familiar with various film portrayals of other boarding school type situations. And, you know, Neri's role in many ways checks the same boxes. And a lot of times that, that, that regimentation is justified by the people who set the standards of what the school is supposed to be about and how necessary it is. And it becomes something you have to learn. It's like when you get dropped in there, you know, they, they whisper to you and you sort of pick up what it's about. I, I, I got the sense that Ruf Kalman took this as like a necessary evil that he knew needed to happen, but he was trying in his kindness outside of that, and especially when you say in the Friday night meals, to offer you, if not an antidote to it, but something that you could, you know, you could, you could, you could, you could revel in. But he wasn't going to go, as I said, beyond. Like there were other rabbeim who were part of the Nerius Troll. Uh, and again, this is not a Nerius Troll pr- project that I'm talking about. But there were other rabbeim who didn't necessarily know that. There were other rabbeim uh, who were before your time who didn't realize, you know, where wh- what was it like to be invited to the house in Yeshiva Lane. I think Rukhaman was aware. I know about the regimentation. I know about that. Here's my chance to give them an ashnav of of of, of family life. But again, with 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 that limit, I don't know if he. Uh, Purim at his house. Uh, were you there, Purim, for his Purim student? So, so by the time I was in Mechina, they... Um, they, canceled, they canceled Purim, right? They canceled, they canceled Purim. Purim, except for 12th grade. So I yeah, <laughs> memories of 30 years ago plus memories of Purim are tough. I assume that that year I was there, I remember that, and I assume I certainly wound up at his house. So let, so let me, let me, because when I was there, Purim was still there. I, I was, I guess one of the, uh, the amalgamated reasons why Purim eventually got canceled, I guess, as they, as the buildup of what happened on Purim, we had a Purim play that was ostensibly not about the yeshiva, it was about the bicentennial and the pushing of a certain type of candidate but we put in as many references uh, to the yeshiva and the rebbeim as we could uh, within the cracks. And I guess eventually they decided that the vildkeit and the drunkenness and uh, the wotsonis had to be sort of bottled up. But I will tell you that by Rav Kalman, you know, I, I think it was something where you came over, you danced, but it wasn't, even there he had that discipline of not unbinding everything. For certain Rebbeim, it was like Purim was a different world. Like you went into Purim and it was like, wow, he's talking to me. He's kissing me. Like, like there's a whole, 
there, there's, 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 it's like, and then you wake up and were we just somewhere else? I think right. that this one, I want to say one other point and you might realize that I've heard this from Rav Simcha Cook, who I've, who I also kept up with throughout the years that Rav Kalman took a very vested interest in all of his Talmudim and, and, and was very aware of what was going on with them, but he didn't, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't necessarily able to act upon them. So to him, I, I wouldn't be surprised you mentioned whether he read your book or not. I, I sort of believe he probably went through a good sections of it. And, and in many ways, he would talk to Rav Simcoe Cook, and I heard this later, with amusement about all his students, and they would schmooze about them, and he could he could laugh and, and utter comments about them that he wasn't able to do in front of them because he had to keep up the facade or the necessary facade that he felt Otherwise, he couldn't be the mashpia that he that he wanted to be. I saw one time. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I've learned since I wrote. You know, I wrote that the day of his life, so exactly a week ago. Uh, since that time, I got an email from one of the other few Ner Yisrael Gush connectors, who's significantly younger than me, uh, who said that after he had come back from Gush, and I, he went back to Ner Yisrael. Uh, he talked to Herb Kalman and then they were discussing uh, my book. So 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 your your prediction w- was right. I, I'd say that and you know I try to end my my remarks with with two things uh, that I thought are are universal or universalizable from Herb Kalman. So first let you know sort of your point, you know, a tenth grade Rebbe is is in a tough spot, so to speak, because sort of Mamanushah. If the Talmud goes on the Torah Lugdula, inevitably there are other Rebbeim, more famous Rashi Yeshiva and whatnot that he's going to be connected to. And the 10th grade Rebbe um, sort of, you know, takes a back seat. And then, you know, if the person's, if their greatest Rebbe wasn't in their greatest moment in Torah in 10th grade, you know, there's obviously limitations to that. And and this is what I, you know, as I kind of think about it, and now having heard, you know, heard some of your program from, from the other people you interviewed, and other things that were said, and things that are via that, like this was, this was, I think, maybe one of his most uh, amazing skills is that he understood, of course, that anyone who's going to go on to great things, tenth grade, you know, in the grand scheme of life, is is is, is, is a data point. But but a, he was able to be mashpia on people, and that's why you have. And he he was sameach in that. I can't, you know, as as an academic, you know, yeshivas and academies are different. But but the, the idea of of people wanting to move up and wanting more recognition and wanting this this is everywhere. And to say that. I think you know maybe in some ways this was his biggest Musr schmooze, the schmooze he never gave. That I am not going to move up. I don't want to be, you know, I don't know whatever happened in reality, but at least what we see, right? He doesn't want to be a Ram in the Yeshiva. He wants to be in the Khina. He doesn't want to give the twelfth grade cheer. He wants to give the tenth grade cheer. And to be able to do that with dedication, to understand that this is important for itself, and what else for the Talmudim, and not for what it says about my reputation uh, and 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 my standing in the world, that that's an unbelievable uh, Musser schmooze. And as I would say, maybe the schmooze he didn't give, but the schmooze that he lived. hundred percent. How many of us, you know, the chorus is, Eidon Ames, V'chatsi Taivoso Biyodoi. And in the world of Teir, it's like, I didn't make it as the Rosh Kail, I didn't make it as the Rosh Shiva, I didn't make it uh, move beyond. And th- that that self-awareness and simcha 
of what he was good at and what Rabbi Shalom really was Ashkaka protest that he fell into it. And I've tried to talk to some of the old uh Narius Troll stalwarts and people, historians, and it's sort of like murky how he came to be that Rebbe. You know, it was a prized uh position to be able to snag uh, a job in the in, in, in as part of the Hanhala. He was not from the Narius Troll died in the Wool Hebra. He did not go there for high school. He went to Chavtzayim, uh, always known as TA. And there were some wonderful Rabbeim, Litvisha Rabbeim, that he was close to. I think he spent two years by one of the top uh, Litvisha Rabbeim there. And he wasn't even particularly close to Abdullah Krumblas, who uh, he evoked uh, uh, numerous times in the Shir. Uh, he was uh, clearly impressed by the Sikhs Chachma Musr that they gave out and Rabdavid's persona. Uh, it's almost a, a, a great mystery of how he comes to be put in that position and the, the Yoivo Shonim that he stays there. You know, I just want to, you know, put on to the record a couple little Zechroinites that uh, I, I don't know if they have the import that perhaps, you know, things that you're saying, but, but I just want to maybe bring out two little things and you, know, you can respond to them. One of them was, you know, I, I talked about his, his knowledge of the world. One of the Maspidim said yesterday that a quoting from Moshe, you know, a word from many, many, uh, many Darshanim. Why does Moshe always say, Anoichi, 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 Um, and he said that Moshe Rabbeinu grew up in the palace of Paro, and Moshe Rabbeinu was aware of the wisdom of the world. Moshe Rabbeinu knew that felt, and he was telling his listeners, hey, I've been there. Um, I know, and I'm telling you, this is the best. And the Talmudim, who were Maspin, Rav Kalman said, Rav Kalman gave the indication that he knew that world as well. We talked about his language and his, his knowledge, um, that he was sort of saying, yes, I know there's something beyond. I know there's other things you might be tempted. There's other things which maybe you will go, but I'm not unaware. I'm not necessarily a guy in a closet who's never heard it and movies as well as this is terrible. So I just want to just give you a little, uh, I, I felt it was, you know, it, it was amusing. And, and I remember that Rav Kalman was sort of, you know, he was caught up in some phrasing that he was doing. And he said, well, over there it's this. And, and, and here it's different. But over there, over there, over there, it's a whole different mahus. So I started, I started humming the George M. Cohen tune over there. I say, over there, over there. Oh, so he gives me this look as, as if he's going to like, you know, rip me apart. And then he can't control his laughing. Right? Like he's, he's like, 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 he's laughing about it. And then he goes back and he looks at me again. And he's, and again, he starts to laugh about over there. Well, he continues the shear and he finishes it. After, after the shear, he calls me over and says, he says, I'm rough. He says, who would have thought that anybody would know George M. Cohen? Who would, who would thought that today, 50 years later, anybody would know George M. Cohen over there? And I said to him, well, Remy, look, you know, one of my favorite movies was the Yankee Doodle Dandy with James Cagney. I said, I, it's something I've seen so many times. It was, it, it's sort of like, it was like, it was almost broken there. And he, he wanted to perhaps like, you know, you know, throw me to the lions for what I was doing, 
But on some level, he had been there. You know, he had been that American boy. He had grown up in Baltimore. He knew he he knew those songs as well. And this was something that, you know, he was amused by by the connection. I'll tell you one last again, one last thing. You mentioned your parents. Do we, did your parents ever come to visit you in Nary's Row? And did you ever introduce them to Rav Kalman? Not really. So again, I, as I think think about it now, I, I think my parents were conflicted about sending me. They did, of course, eventually. But my father, for sure, never never came to the yeshiva. My mother then had a friend who lived in Baltimore, and I think came to Baltimore and maybe to the yeshiva. I don't remember. But, you know, that and that a little bit, I think, is is why I, I would look through a as a father. I, I really had no anchoring in the yeshiva. There were some older guys from Atlanta who I knew and one of which uh, took care of me. But basically, uh, I, I had walked into a foreign culture. I didn't know yeshivish. I knew Hebrew. I grew up sort of in Hebrew, but uh, I didn't know yeshivish. And more importantly, I didn't know the, the cultural lingo. And, you know, in high school, that's really important. Uh, and I think we common saw that. And that's really one of the reasons, other than the, the substance of Torah, of course. But but he saw that. He saw a boy who was a little bit lost, but, like, it's actually kind of interested and interesting. And, and he really he really took to me. And as I said, Hakar Satov, if nothing else. And that's why I come back to this, this idea of the 10th grade Rebbe. Uh, it's so easy to forget. And I'll just end with, with, with this, you know. And this is about Rav Kalman, but maybe about yeshivas generally. You know, I now teach in a law school. And I say this, you know, with some combination of Baruch Hashem and it's sad. You know, my students, sometimes they come during office hours. And, of course, we talk about the things in class. And sometimes we talk about, you know, things a little bit broader. But the idea that, uh, you know, they're going to come to my house every week. Uh, the idea that uh, we're going to form some kind of, like, deep connection is not on their agenda and in some ways just not part of the the, the habits and the norms of the academy uh, with the exception of very rare circumstances. You know, the, the power of seeing your Rebbe learn in the base measures, seeing him go through this year. Right? My students don't see me working on things. I do this in my office and we go, we meet in the classroom for, you know, 80 minutes, 90 minutes, 120 minutes. And uh, yeah, that's what it is. That's one of the very powerful things of yeshivas generally, and certainly in my experience in Israel, nobody fulfilled that part of the role uh, better than Rupal. Yeah, and that's you know, really what, what you're saying is just to put it in a you know Talmudic parlance is really shimish talmid chachamim, the idea of of you know kosher korav shanavli shimish talmid chachamim harizamaritz. You know, so it's interesting. You know, the 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 connectedness. I'll say one last thing here, and again, you can respond to it. As I said, there, there, Neri Stroll was a place, and, and maybe when you were there, which was already almost 20 years after I was there, you, you talked about the sports figures. You talked about the idea of making it into the upper echelon. When I was there, there was almost a, a, a knowledge who was the sharpest, who was the smartest, who was the best guy in this year. Like there was, oh, we sort of plebes who were just freshies when we started, we knew like who's the best guy in each year. And, and everyone talked about that. It was like similar to, 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 to sports players and, and, and who's the best, right? There was also a subcategory of like who was the strong guys who could do Hagba like in the best way as well. But, but, but there was a greater emphasis about who was the top guy in each year. And there was also talk, and again, it's, it's like really uh, infantile almost, but, but, but it's understandable who among the Rebbeim 
Like, I, I remember uh, the year before I came, and I still saw the remnants of this, the two highest uh, shiurim each put out, Rav Heinemann, Zogazunzein, uh, or Matthias Weinberg, put out the 100 most important sugyas and shas. Like each one had their list. Like, you know, the mother, and, and everybody was, was into it. So, oh, which, like, we're, we're like the, the top hundred. And, and I think, you know, there was also the discussion of who's the biggest Lamdin. And, and, and I think part of, uh, the idea of, about Rav Kalman, you know, was, you know, it, 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 he never really entered into that cheshpin. He was sort of beyond, you know, that sort of like, like I would say petty, understandable way of, 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 of defining yeshiva life. But I, I think he had something that was so much greater than pure intellectual brain power. And we you talked about his care, his understanding. It, it was also he knew how to parcel out to the student what they needed without going to them over and saying to them, oh, I know you needed that. That's why I'm telling it to you. And there's many of us who, who are so proud of our insight, our sagacity of what our people need that we, like the Gemara Beitza says, we give them a matona, we have to be modia to them, how it came to us. And and this happened to me, I asked you about your parents for a reason. You know, I, I had a a very glorified sense of my dad. And my dad was a European Holocaust survivor who basically spent all his Shabbosim uh, immersed in learning and you know, during the rest of the week, he was, you know, taken up by, by so much, but he had the, uh, a, a, an incredible memory and understanding. And I, again, I couldn't get, I really, I couldn't study with him uh, on Shabbos because his level of learning was much greater than mine. We tried to do Ramban on Chumash and, um, he was very happy that he was able to get the Chevelle edition that my brother brought back. So he said, oh, you know, he told me in Yiddish, you can use this one. As he took, he used the old McCrois Kedovas, and he told me to use the Chevelle. Okay. So, I mean, and this was before I went to Yeshiva. And, you know, I butchered it. You know, I butchered it, even with, you know, even with the notes or whatever. Uh, we finally had to settle Bidiev. It was big Bidiev for my dad that uh, to do uh, Sefer Achinuch, which had the Nekudos in it. So I was able to read Sefer Achinuch, to which my dad was always a come down. I mean, okay, we're going to do the same Chidduch, but he always, you know, he was disappointed. Anyway, my point is, is that, and I remember crying to my mom. I said, you know, you know, Tati, you know, he, you know, he's too tough. But I always wanted to aspire to, to, to be able to, to make my dad proud. So my dad came up with the birth uh, of a grandchild. My dad drove up from Memphis uh, to Baltimore, a little bit farther than Atlanta to Baltimore. Uh, and he came in. There was a special place that, if you remember, uh, I don't know if it was in your time, where visitors stay. There was a special room in the dormitory. And I brought him to Rav Kalman. He started telling over to my dad, Droshes, on Asei Harab, Because I said, Rebbe, I said, I said, Tata, this is my Rebbe. This is my Rebbe. So, you know, I said, this is my Rebbe. So he said, Rebbe. And he quoted, the, you know, the Mishnah Pirkei Ovois. And, and he started going into this whole you say about why Kenyan is higher than Asiya. That Asiya Harav is, is something that you have to work on, but, uh, Chaveirim is even more important. And I mean, he was, he was holding forth, uh, with Rakalman. And Rakalman was listening with a, such a big smile on his face and talking to him. And while my mother spoke to, to the Revinson and afterwards, 
he came over to me and he said, Ah, Avram, I see where you come from. I see where you come from. Like he knew somehow my admiration, how much my dad meant. And when he said those words, that was sort of like a, it almost healed years of feeling inadequate. He, how did he know that? How did this 27-year-old fellow who was rocketed into this position, dealing with so much, take the time and the loving time to care and also recognize the deep connection I had to my dad and wanting my dad's validation and then telling me that he saw within me same strengths, the same aspects as American George M. Cohen movie Meshuggah that I was, he was able to see, yeah, I can see your dad in you. I see your dad. Now I see who you are. And, and, and to me, I'll say it even a little even more deeper. You know, my dad was not a rabbi. He wasn't uh, in an official position. He was a European Jew who, who basically tried to learn. But that my Rebbe should be makir, that he was a person of significance, that he was a person who who had something, that meant so much to me. And, and I think that's, I, I, that I think, I think it would admit, Chaim, that's something that's almost innate. Most people are, are, are too caught up in where they want to go to have that type of gift to be able to to spread that. And that's something that, you know, that that's a matana from the Rabbani Shalom that, that, that you have to, that Rakhalman, I think, exercised uh, so incredibly. Anyway, he should be a Meilat Yeshur for all his Talmidim and and Mitzah Shem, the Mishpacha should have a true Nechama from the way they lived and supported really a person that truly can be called an Adam Godel Devit Hashem. Thank you, Chaim, for taking this time to talk about him. Amit Hashem will share only Mr. Estevez. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.